So would you stand with me now as we read from God's word? We're going to read the first 19 verses here of Daniel, 9, of Daniel chapter 9. This is Daniel's cry to the Lord. This is a prayer. We're in the midst of this apocalyptic section, and there's only one break from Daniel 7 to 12 that is not focused on uh, apocalyptic literature, and it's this. Uh, And really, it sets up the answer that God gives that we'll look at next week. But we want to look at the heart of Daniel's prayer together today. In the first year of Darius, the son of Asaras, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must proclaim before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy and with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As, as at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all of Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he has set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that, were, uh, that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against you, him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us, against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord, Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolation and the city that is called by your name. For we do not 
present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, may we echo the prayer of Daniel this morning. Your people who are called by your name stand before you asking that your Holy Spirit will shine a light on our sin as you have shown a light on the sin of your people in Daniel's day. Let us not harden our hearts. Let us not turn aside from your revealing power, we pray. Thank you, God, for the forgiveness in which you call us to walk for the righteous example of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, God. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We have entitled this entire series, our walk through Daniel, as Faith in Exile. I argued in the first sermon of this series a couple of months ago for that series title, and it was actually the title of the first sermon as well, because I believe from a human perspective, it is the theme of the book, that it's the reason the book was written. And just about every week, I've, I've presented these, these two ideas that we see in Daniel. One is the Lord is sovereign over the rise and fall of empires. We will see that again here in Daniel 9. But also that his people living in exile are called to faithful, obedient lives. Here we see what I believe to be the greatest example of an exile's prayer in all of Scripture. As we live in our own version of exile, as what Peter writes in 1 Peter, as elect exiles, those chosen of God whose citizenship is now in heaven and yet we still live in this sinful world, we too must pray in exile. When we come to the realization that this world is not our home, that this nation in which we live is not our nation, that this place that we call our temporary residence, even those of you who are old Suffolk that have lived here for a long time must recognize this is not your home. When we come to realize our own exile, it should do what it did for Daniel, drive us to our knees as we realize that God has called us to live faithfully in a world that is not our home, we should never have to wonder, Lord, what do you want me to pray for? Sometimes, and it's okay if you've asked this question, but people have asked me this. We hosted several years ago a prayer conference centered around this very subject for this very reason because there are people maybe even gathered here right now that at least at some point in your life, maybe today, you have thought, I don't really pray a whole lot because I just don't know what I'm supposed to pray for. 
Well, can I tell you, Daniel's going to help us with that? That Daniel's going to help us as we, as we progress through the first part of this chapter, help us to see if we will but put ourselves in the place of an exile, which we are, we will realize that we should never lack for things to pray for. Because God continually calls his people to their knees as we seek to live faithfully in a world that is not our home. So we're looking today at prayer and exile. And four things that we see from guided here by the prayer of Daniel. The first is that prayer is guided by the word. So when we see prayers like this in Daniel chapter 9, we don't necessarily pray the same exact thing, number one, because we're not Daniel and we're not Israel. And we're not in exile in Babylon by this point in Daniel's life, Persia. But yet we can still be guided by it. So we don't need to, it's bad hermeneutics. It means it's bad Bible to place yourself in the position of that person and say, well, I'm going to do exactly what they did because this is what Daniel did. It was good enough for Daniel, it's good enough for me. That's, that's not the intent. But our prayer life should be guided by the scripture. So when we see prayers in the scripture, we should ask certain questions about why the person is praying what they're praying, what they're praying, how they're expressing these things to the Lord. But further than that, it is not only the prayers in Scripture that should guide our prayers. It is all of Scripture. It is all of what God has revealed to his people in his word to us that should influence our prayer life. Look back with me in verses 1 and 2. In verse 1, Daniel identifies the time of of this prayer and ultimate vision that he's going to receive or answer to the prayer that he's going to receive in a vision from the Lord. And we're told it is the first year of Darius. So this means, this is the guy who, if you'll remember back to Daniel chapter 6, this is the guy that put Daniel in the lion's den. So this is after the fall of Babylon, which is important for the context of the prayer. Babylon has now fallen to Persia. Daniel at this point would be likely in his late 70s. He would have lived for somewhere in the neighborhood of 55 years or so under Babylonian uh, in Babylonian captivity, having risen to power, and now, as we saw in Daniel 6, transitioned to a new ruler and yet still being given power because of God's grace that was on him. And what's Daniel doing here in these first couple of verses? So he gives us the, he gives us the context that it's the first year of Darius, but then we read that I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord, Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So what is Daniel doing here at the beginning of chapter nine? Daniel is reading the scripture. He's reading Jeremiah. We know he's reading Jeremiah because he's told us that he's perceived what the Lord has already spoken through the prophet, specifically the prophet Jeremiah. Now, because we know the context of what Daniel is reading and what he's going to pray, we can actually go to chapter and verse in Daniel or in Jeremiah and see what Daniel's actually reading. He's reading Jeremiah 25. 
Jeremiah 25 verses 11 and 12 say, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. This is what Daniel is reading. And here's what Daniel recognizes in this year that Babylon ceases to exist and Persia has now risen to power is that the word of God is coming true. Like before his very eyes, he's seeing the word of God come to light. And so Daniel knows there's only going to be about 70 years and 55, maybe 60 of those, depends on how, Daniel, how young Daniel was. There, there's this period of time that's passed, but the time of exile is getting close to being over. Daniel recognizes that. And what we see in the prayer of Daniel is that his prayer is guided by the truth of Scripture. And so should ours. We should be influenced by prayers like Daniel, but we should also be influenced by things that we know to be true in God's word. So when I say you should never run out of things to pray for, one of the reasons you should never run out of things to pray for is because God has spoken to us in his word. We can know certain things about his will. And if you wonder what to pray for your life, for your family's life, for our church, for our world, just look in scripture and pray what God has said. This is what the apostle John encourages in 1 John chapter 5. He says, and this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that, the hear, uh, that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have a request that we have asked of him. Now, modern Christianity is kind of misunderstood, I think, or misapplied 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, where it talks about praying in God's will. And we seem to think that if we will just end our sentences, God, do all of this according to your will, that that's kind of fulfilling what John's writing there. It's not fulfilling what John's writing there. We get it backwards. It's not about us praying and then asking that it would be a part of God's will. That's backwards. The way that we should think about it is that we go to Scripture and see what God has told us is his will and then we pray those things. And here's what we're told. 100% of our prayers that are prayed in accordance with the will of God will be answered in the affirmative. I got some good news for you today, friend. Do you want 100% assurance that God's gonna say yes to your prayer? Pray according to scripture. Now, don't take scripture and twist it to mean what you want it to mean. Don't take scripture and try to do, again, to try to do the reverse and say, well, scripture says this and I want God to do this. So I'm gonna kind of try to force God's hand. Prayer is not us forcing God's hand. Prayer is us aligning our hearts with what God has already said is true and what God has already revealed about himself to us. This is what prayer does. Prayer aligns our hearts with God's heart. So the more we know scripture, what God has said to us, the more effective our prayer life will be because we are praying according to that which God has already told us. And that's what Daniel is doing. Daniel says, I'm, I'm, he's coming, he's in Jeremiah and he's reading this. He's like, God said, it's gonna be 70 years and that 70 years is, already up, is almost up. And God said, he's gonna punish Babylon and look what's happened. Remember the handwriting on the wall and the very next day, Persia comes in and conquers Babylon. 
God's doing what he has said through the prophet Jeremiah. And Daniel recognizes that he's at the end. And this is driving him to pray. Our devotion to God's word should also drive us in our devotion to prayer before God. Oh God, would we not seek to pray selfish, self-centered, self-focused, self-driven prayers, but would we pray prayers that are driven by your word, your revealed will to us? That's what we see Daniel do. Second is we see a prayer grounded in humility. Look at verse three. Then I turned my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So the word has driven, has driven Daniel to pray, but it's driven Daniel to pray in a specific way. The word drove Daniel to pray in when he gets thrown in the lion's den by, by Darius. Why Daniel went to his upper room and opened his doors and prayed towards Jerusalem where people could see him? Was that wrong of Daniel to do? No, it's something Daniel had likely practiced. There's nothing wrong with praying with your window open. There's nothing wrong with us praying publicly and corporately, which we will do on a couple of occasions together this morning and which you will do uh, together in your small groups. The, those, there, it's a fine thing to pray publicly. It's an, it's a, it's a, thing that's demonstrated to us in scripture. So certainly not something that we're going to see is wrong. As long as our public prayers model that, that we see are modeled after that, that we see here in Daniel, you can pray publicly and still play, pray with humility, whether you're pray and you can pray privately and still pray in pride, right? So it's not about public versus private. It's about humility versus pride in our lives. Listen to the way that Jesus says it in Matthew chapter six. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. And when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray that your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And you may say, wait a second. I thought you said it's not about location, but doesn't Jesus say that it's about location here? Jesus is driving at the heart of what drives us. And if what drives us is a desire to go stand out in a corner and pray so that other people walk by, I'm like, man, look how pious and faithful and, you know, this guy is. Then we're being driven by the wrong thing. The Lord's, the Lord's Jesus here is, is correcting that. And he said, if that's your temptation, go lock yourself in a closet and don't let anybody know what you're doing. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus actually tells a parable of two men that go up to Jerusalem to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stands as all of these other people are around praying and he stands and says, oh Lord, thank you that I am not a sinner like all the rest of these men, right? And what, is the, what does the tax collector do? The tax collector gets on his face before the Lord and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Both of these are public prayer. And notice what Jesus says in Luke chapter 18 in that parable. He says, one of these men is justified. Meaning one of these men went home right with God and the other didn't. I, it's just some, a secret. It wasn't the Pharisee. It's the tax collector who prayed in his humility still publicly, but prayed in his humility before the Lord. Oh Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. So not only should our prayers be guided by the word of God, it must be grounded in humility. We must recognize that without God, we're nothing. Let's have the heart of that tax collector and not the heart of that Pharisee. 
I'm, I'm afraid too many of us want to pray like Pharisees. Too many of us want to look around at the sins of others and say, oh God, because I've done this and that and, and, and because of all this greatness about me, I'm no longer like these people. Listen, every one of us, I don't care how long you've been walking with the Lord, every one of us should pray prayers like the tax collector. Be merciful to me, oh Lord, for I am a sinner. The word drove Daniel to humility and it should drive us to humility before the Lord because to pray the kind of, we're about to get into the prayer proper here and to pray the kind of prayer that David prays here with a sincere heart demands humility on our part. It demands that we recognize that there is nothing innately good about me and there is nothing that I have done to earn my place in God's kingdom. It is only by the merciful hand of God in my life to forgive me a sinner. So the word tells us what to pray. It tells us how to pray in humility. And number three, we, look, we see prayer focused on the need for confession. The majority of Daniel's prayer here is a prayer of confession. It is a prayer at the end of the time of the exiles where Daniel turns to God and both personally and corporately confesses sin. We're going to slow down here and and see some things about what true confession really looks like as we look at the meat of Daniel's prayer. First, true confession admits personal and corporate sins. Read with me verses four and five. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenants and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turned aside from your commandments and rules. As best we know, Daniel's alone here. And it seems to indicate that when verse four tells us, I prayed to the Lord. Daniel hasn't called a prayer meeting. Daniel hadn't called, you know, his accountability group together. He's not called the other guys together. As far as we know, Daniel's alone in this moment. But then verse five, the pronoun changes. The pronoun changes from I in verse four to we in verse five, but not only in verse five. In verse five, we see we have sinned. In verse six, we see we have not listened. In verse eight, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame. Verse nine, we have rebelled. Verse 11, all Israel has transgressed Uh, your laws. Verse 15, the ending of this confession section, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. The we us statements of verses verses five through 15 teach us something about confession. And that is, yes, I need to confess my sins to the Lord. And yes, you need to confess your sins to the Lord. But something that is often not practiced and even in some circles frowned upon in the church of God is that we would confess our sins to the Lord. That we together would say, God, we have failed you. We have sinned. We have not listened. We have rebelled. We have transgressed your laws. We have done wickedly. Now, you ready for me to take it a step further? Because I'm really gonna kind of get into our prayer lives for a second. Not only is Daniel confessing this we as in present tense, we, the exiled people of God in what was Babylon and now Persia, but are you ready? Daniel is confessing the sins for dead people. Now, not unto salvation. Don't get me wrong. Daniel's not confessing sins to the point where disobedient dead people will will somehow be made right with God. 
But Daniel is recognizing that the sins of previous generations within the people of God have greatly impacted the current situation of the people of God. Keep in mind, it was generations past that committed these sins against God in Israel. Daniel was but maybe a teenager when he was taken out of exile or taken into exile out of Israel. And we know that God had pronounced judgment generations before. And yet Daniel still confesses them here. Brian Chapel, writing about this, this section of this passage, writes, Daniel confesses the reality of not only his sin, but the people's sin because he had been called to carry their burden as his own, even though he did not cause the burden. So Daniel is confessing things that he wasn't even the cause of. And he's feeling the burden and the need to do this. And let's just be honest. When the church of God in our world, in our culture, is faced with sins that previous generations were complicit or even sometimes implicit in committing, we balk at wanting to confess that. We go, oh, no, no, those were other people. That, that, was, that was previous generations that did that. That's not happening around us anymore. Now, come on, church. This is, this is the way people respond sometimes in our world. But if we are going to follow the prayer of Daniel, Daniel is confessing sin, not only of his own generation, but he is confessing sins of the generations of God's people before them that affected him, that are the reason that he is in exile. God told them this would happen. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, in starting verse 13, which people often want to quote 2 Chronicles 7, they don't often quote 13, they always quote 14. When I shut up the heavens so there is no rain, or command that the locusts devour the land, or send pestilence among my people. So God is saying, when I do these things as punishment for wickedness amongst my people, then he says, verse 14, which is going to be familiar to some of you. If my people who are called by my name, humble themselves, do exactly what Daniel's demonstrating here, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, 2 Chronicles 7 is written about Israel, the Old Testament people of God. Daniel here praying is praying and confessing the sins of not only his generation, but previous generations who have sinned against God. But this is a demonstration to us. And when I say us, let me be abundantly clear who I am talking about. The regenerate people of God, the church, Christians, us those who God have called out of darkness into light and placed as a part of his family. This is not to be claimed by nations, our nation or any other. We just get a little uncomfortable around, I don't know, 4th of July, because this verse starts showing up on American flags and stuff and we go, that's not what that's about. It's about the people of God and how the people of God, not a nation, a people, how the people of God need to turn their hearts back to God. How when we see the, 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 the hand of God coming against sinners, even in our own midst as it was in Daniel's life, then we need to be the ones to turn back towards him. 
The church should be a church that, that is, a, that is a, a open place of confession, both of personal sin and of corporate sin, where we are always looking to confess our sins before God. One author said it like this, what distinguishes us from the world is not that we are less wicked, but that, we, but that by grace of God, we have learned to see our wickedness for what it is and that we confess our sins. The church is the only body on earth that confesses sin. Where the confession of sin dies out, the church is no longer the church. Now, we're not talking about confession where you go into some darkened room and tell your woes and your deeds to somebody, some nameless face on the other side of the curtain. That's not what's being described here. What's being described here is an open freedom within the church to say, I have failed and to say, we have failed. Notice Daniel is not focused on the sins of Babylon. He's focused on the sins of Israel. <laughs> Far too often, Christians want to lament the sins of our culture and not the sins of the body of Christ. Folks, we can't control what happens out there. But we, we can't confess what's happening out there. But we can control and confess what's happening in here that we recognize our own sin and call to the Lord together for his forgiveness. And we have to ask questions like, what sins are currently present in my life? What sins are currently present in our church? Or if you do wanna look outside, fine, but look at it from this perspective. What sins in our culture have we stood by and allowed to happen without calling people to repentance? Without saying, that's sinful. Oh, Lord, let this be a place where confession happens regularly one to another, corporately, calling out to God for his forgiveness, always looking for ways that we could walk in his righteousness. Second is true confession recognizes the source of disobedience. Pick up with me in verse six. You're gonna notice in verse six to 10 that, that Daniel kind of follows this, this pattern, okay? So six and 10 kind of mirror each other. And so you'll, you'll notice we're gonna go up one side of the hill and come down on the, on the other side of the hill and end in the same place. We have not listened to your servant, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As, this, uh, as at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belong open shame to our kings, to our princes and to our fathers because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws which he has set before us by his servant, the prophets. So you see this, this structure, right? It starts in one place and it goes up and then it comes down in, into the same place. And so where it starts and where it ends is very telling for us. We didn't listen, Daniel says, to your prophets. We didn't listen who, to those who spoke in your name. Then you get to verse 10. We've not obeyed the voice of the Lord. We've not walked in your laws. We have not done, oh God, what you have told us to do. The middle section show us the righteousness of God. 
So here's the way that we should see this. God is always righteous. God is always what Daniel says of him here. But his people fall into great shame when they fail to heed his word. The the end of the history of Israel in the Chronicles, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. We get towards the end of that and we read this in Second Chronicles 36. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. What the, what the chronicler there is describing to us is exactly what Daniel is experiencing. For generations, the people of God failed to listen to his word until the point where God's wrath poured out on them and they were sent into exile. And Daniel describes the exile like this, shame. This is not internal shame, this is external shame. This is the external shame of a nation conquered and in exile. It is, it is a nation that later David would say, or that Daniel would say, we've become a byword, meaning we're just a footnote in history now. <laughs> that this is the shame that they have experienced. And why has this shame become upon them? Because they did not obey God. Look, we don't have to overcomplicate this. I'm not meaning to overcomplicate. I'm passionate about it. I'm not meaning to overcomplicate it. What was the sin of the people? They failed to do what God had told them to do. And what is still today the sin of the people? That we so often fail to do what God tells us to do. This is why Daniel, reading the word of God, is driven in humility to his knees because he recognizes that generations past did not listen to God. And for them to be restored to Israel, it was going to require them to listen to God. We must, our confession must recognize that the source of our disobedience is our desire to listen to our hearts over God's and our mind over his and our way over his. Number three, true confession expresses godly grief for sinful actions. Pick up in verse 11. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what had been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord, our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and he has brought it upon us. For the Lord, our God, is righteous in all his works uh, that he has done. And we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and, would have, and have made a name for yourself as at this day we have sinned. We have done wickedly. What Daniel shows us here is what it means to have true godly grief and to express that true godly grief in our repentance towards God, in our confession towards him. That when we are confronted by the truth of God's word and it shows us the truth of our own wickedness, our own disobedience towards what he has told us is right, the Christian responds in godly grief. Grief is not a bad thing if it is godly. There are two kinds of grief. 
There's worldly grief and godly grief. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Let me start with worldly grief. Worldly grief is the recognition of suffering without the repentance of sin. Worldly grief says things like, woe is me. Worldly grief gets online and wants everybody to feel bad for them without actually changing their actions. That's worldly grief. Godly grief, on the other hand, wrought in our lives by the Holy Spirit, revealed to us through the truth of God's word, says, you have grieved God, and yet you can turn back to him. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Godly grief doesn't have to look back on what you used to be. Oh, I love the last part of what Paul says there, without regret. It means that I don't have to look back on who I was and still feel bad about who I was. I get to live in who I am today in Jesus. And yet I still sin. And when I still sin, God brings about godly grief in my life that calls me to continue to turn towards his face and run towards his righteousness. And this is what we see from Daniel. Not woe is me, not woe is Israel, Oh God, we have sinned. Oh God, we have transgressed your laws. Oh God, we have done wickedly. Let that turn us back to you. Number four, prayer remembering God's character. This is where Daniel ends for us here in this prayer. Is he calls out to God and what he knows to be true about him. We see two things about the, the character of God. First, the Lord is righteous, judging the wicked. Look at verse 16. Oh Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our father, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Make no mistake, Daniel views the exile of God's people as the wrath of God having been poured out because of the disobedience of God's people in Israel. They are where they are because of their sin, but God punishes sin in his righteousness. The character of God that's revealed to us here is not wrath, it's righteousness. Let me make a clarifying statement for you. Wrath is not an eternal attribute of God. God is not eternally wrathful. God is eternally righteous. The attributes of God mean God is unchanging, meaning that what God has always been for eternity past, God will always be in eternity future. God has always been righteous, but out of his righteousness is a demand that, that the wicked be judged. And it is this righteousness that Daniel turns to. It is this righteousness that Daniel appeals to. According to all your righteous acts, God has judged Israel. And according to all of his righteous acts, God is still judging our world. As a response to the state of, I'm going to get in trouble. As a response to the state of the union, I'm just going to say it. I saw somebody this week, not in our church, post uh, online, and they said, it's clear that God's judgment is now on our nation. That was their response to the state of union address. And my thought was, when's it ever not been? Wait, you're just coming to realize this now? Because you don't like the guy at the water? Like it? Look, folks. 
God's judgment is again, has been against the nations of this world since we sinned in the garden. God, God's judgment, because of his righteousness and, and hey, because of his goodness, he's withheld so much of that judgment from us. This is what we see here is, is Daniel appeals to the righteousness of God, recognizing that in his righteousness, he must judge sin. But second, the Lord is merciful, hearing the prayers of his people. Not only is God eternally righteous, God is eternally merciful. And this is really, really, really good news. Okay, like as good of news as you could possibly imagine. The mercy of God is his goodness. Those of you who've been coming on Wednesday nights, I defined this a couple of weeks ago. The mercy of God is his goodness, meaning his compassion and even pity towards those in distress. When we recognize that we're under the wrath of God because of the righteousness of God, we then cry out to a merciful God for forgiveness. Look at verses seven through 19. Now, therefore, O God, listen to the prayers of your servants and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake. O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eye and see our desolations and, and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Do not for your own sake, O my God, because of your city and your people are called by your name. You may be sitting here today thinking, why in the world would God listen to me? Pastor, if you know what I've done, if you know where I've been, if you know how wicked I have acted in my life, why would God listen to me? Hear me, friend, God will listen to you today because he has mercy towards you. And here's how I know that, because he had mercy towards me. I'm saying this as someone who has received the great mercy of God in my life. And you too, my friend, can. God is good towards you. He will hear your prayer. And hear me, church. He will hear our prayer. He continues to be merciful towards us, hearing the prayers of his children when we have sinned against him. So what? I think the first question we have to ask is, do we pray like this? Are we still supposed to pray like this? It, 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 did Jesus change anything about the way that we pray? Is, is Daniel's prayer being in the Old Testament and, and Jesus coming, uh, you know, 500 years or something later, it, it, does, that, does that change anything? Well, yes and yes. Yes, we absolutely should still pray like this. And yes, Jesus changed everything. So our so what points us, our application points us to the truth that we find in Jesus. Jesus Christ, our high priest who intercedes for us, calls us to a life of regular confessional prayer before the Lord. Let me start with just the best news. Even though we are still, we still deal with sin and I'm Christians, we still deal with sin. We still struggle in that we're imperfect in so many ways. And one of the places that we're imperfect is even realizing our own sin. This is something you realize as you walk with the Lord for a long time is that you, there are things that you come to be convinced of, of sin in your own life that you didn't even know could possibly have been there a decade before. But Jesus knows. And here's how the author of Hebrews tells us about Jesus knowing this and what he's doing for us. 
He says, the former priests were many in number because they were pre uh, prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, talking about Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently, but because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So do you know all your own sin? Nope, you don't, but Jesus does. And here's what Jesus is doing right now, making intercession for you. That's really, really good news. He's making intercession for you. Jesus acting as our high priest is always interceding for us. So the good news is if you're in Christ, you have a perfect high priest who is always praying for you. But that doesn't mean that we don't also confess our sin. That doesn't mean that just because Jesus is doing it perfectly, then we just walk about life, living in our sin and living in our ignorance of our sin. We're not off the hook here. Back in 1 John chapter 1, the, the apostle John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he's writing to Christians that confession is a regular part of the Christian life. Confession is a regular part of the church activity that we are regularly confessing to one another and to the Lord, both personally and corporately in an effort to align our will with God's will in, or, in order to further sanctify us in Christ's righteousness. So yes, Jesus has it covered in heaven, but our obedient response to that is that we continue to pray like Daniel prayed, confessing personal and corporate sins, recognizing the righteousness of God in our own sinfulness, but calling on his mercy to continue to make us into the image of his son. so that we then can agree with what we read like in Psalm 32, where we read, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, though my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and you did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. When we fail to confess, that middle part of that stanza, the, it weighs heavy on us. But when we turn to God and say, oh God, I'm sorry for my sin. God, I'm sorry for our sin. I'm sorry for the places that we together have failed you. God, God, will you call me into your righteousness? God, will you continue in your mercy to draw me into and make me into the image of Jesus? God, every time says, yes, yes, yes. Merciful God does this for us as we walk in prayer towards him, recognizing that Jesus is always there for us, his people. Let's pray together. God, now, would we not hear this and not respond? Guard us, I pray, oh God, from the sinful action now of hearing your word, but not doing your word. May we be doers of your word. And your word has instructed us this morning to be people of prayer. And not just superficial prayer, but to be people that allow the Holy Spirit to delve into our hearts, to delve into our congregation and call out sin 
and confess it to you. So God, whatever that looks like, whatever form that takes in the lives of your saints today, we pray, God, that you would bring that about by your Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.